I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Welcome to Sports Lit. Today on the program, journalist and author Dan Good will be conversing about his first official book, Playing Through the Pain, Ken Caminiti and the Steroids Confession that Changed Baseball Forever. It was released by Abrams Press on May 31st, 2022. Ken Caminiti was the first Major League Baseball player to say on the record that he had used anabolic steroids to support his performance during the 1990s. Dan Good, our guest today, describes that Sports Illustrated cover from 2002 that amplified Caminiti's confession as a live bomb with a burning wick. Now, Caminiti had the status to be there and say, I did it, and a lot of other guys did it, and here's why. Because just a half decade or so earlier, he had been a unanimous winner of a league most valuable player award, pairing home run power with some of the smoothest fielding play at third base that many fans had seen in a good in a good while. And he was loved by baseball fans, including our guest today, Dan. He played baseball the way fans think they would play baseball. You know, maybe. Uh, recent example from our experience was think Josh Donaldson when he came to the Toronto Blue Jays in the mid 2010s and just gave them a jolt of je m'en fous, throwing a little uh, Quebec slang at y'all that the team hadn't had since Joe Carter touched them all in 1993, which we've probably referenced on this program once or twice, Neil. Absolutely. And in- including our most recent episode, uh, season six, episode five with Howard Bryant and Ricky Henderson, who was the guy that set that inning up the bottom of the ninth in game six against the Phillies in 1993 for Joe Carter's heroics. Back to yeah, Caminiti. To throw... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, yeah. Nate. Yeah, just to throw in quickly, Ricky Henderson was a teammate of Ken Caminiti during that MVP season. Of course, I think everyone played with Ricky Henderson at some point. Go on. <laughs> 1996, yes. Um, so Caminiti. If there was ever a player who had the talent, but perhaps a broken down body due to his playing style and playing conditions, namely the Houston Astrodome, which was his home field, and that, or should I say home turf, they, I don't think that's the right term, more like home concrete. You know, it was the guy they called Cammy, who played from 1987 to 2001. With steroids, he can maintain and perhaps elevate his natural talent. And I think that part natural talent is very important when discussing Ken Caminiti. Steroids didn't give him all those great tools. He was born he was born with that. So, further on, he was known for going full bore all the time, on the field and off of it. He played what you can call full contact baseball, and he was good, very good. But as you say, Nate, that is kind of overshadowed by the confession in a lot of ways. Or at least Dan Good reminds us of that in this book. Because the confession verified years of whispers. Years of what... It solidified what we already knew. That the game was full of juice. Yeah, exactly. And it's important to remember what it did for how it affected baseball. Because, you know, 90% of the sport is hand-eye coordination. And there isn't yet a drug that can give you magic hand-eye coordination, apart from maybe that one WKRP episode with Johnny Fever doing the reflex test. But the way Ken Caminiti had played the game before he made that crucial, uh, you know, career and life choice, that was what drew Dan Good to him as a potential subject. He remembered the way Ken Caminiti played, even though I believe Dan Good grew up in the northeastern United States in Pennsylvania, and Ken Caminiti was playing on the other side of the country for teams in Texas and Southern California. And that was why when he, you know, became a media worker, became a journalist, he decided, you know, let's, let's not forget what this, the effect that this guy had on the people he played with and on his sport by, you know, unburdening himself. Uh, And that's why he's written, you know, what I think is an excellent baseball biography, obviously 
you know, us dedicating episode to it is kind of our endorsement. Uh, Ken Caminiti, in a certain tragic way, was right on time to get caught up in the steroid era in baseball. Now, I will always point out the commissioner from that era, Bud Selig, got into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. So did Tony Larusa, who managed Jose Consenco and Mark McGuire, whose steroid use had so much notoriety that it became fodder for a Lonely Island comedy special. But, you know, who's not in the Hall of Fame, of course? The best batter and pitcher of the last 75 years, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, respectively. And without them, they're really the story of baseball over the last 35 years is incomplete. But, you know, that's neither here nor there because we're talking about someone and the toll that being caught up on that took on this person. Yeah. And, and Nate, there's there's lots of uh, talk in this or, or lots in this book about you know, cheating has been around for a long time, even before steroids or different versions of what may be performance-enhancing drugs in, in baseball. So that's there. But what I think most people will feel, and the public sentiment is, is the, is the, the guys you just mentioned, you know, Maguire, Canseco, um, uh, Clemens, and Bonds, that they're cheaters, and it's right that they don't enter Cooperstown. But moving on to, to touch on what you said as well, Dan Good's book shows us empathy in this tragic figure who is Ken, someone, and he's the guy you can root for, someone who, unlike those names I just mentioned, it doesn't seem to be all about him. It, it's more about why a guy like him, all heart, decided to go down this road. Yeah, and it, you know, I think there probably was an aspect of he was doing it because he wanted to be there for his teammates. He wanted to be a good player to help his team. Now, the reason I say he was right on time was, well, Ken was born in 1963. He was the same age as Mark McGuire. In fact, they both played their last Major League Baseball game on the same day. He he was also that year younger than Roger Clemens, one year older than Bonds. And as you mentioned, Neil, he came up when baseball still had, you know, the concrete donut type of uh, stadium, especially in the National League. He was probably playing more than half his games on AstroTurf, you know, diving one way to, you know, keep a ball from going down in the left field corner, diving another way, to, you know, to turn a single into a 5-4-3 double play. And in this, and it's something that's universal in baseball is when players, you know, turn 30 years old or so, that's when they start to feel the cumulative effects from playing a sport that has 162 game regular season. Uh, you know, people think, oh, baseball players, they don't get tired. It's not physical, but they do it every day for six months. And what people said steroids did was, you know, guys, instead of being tired and, you know, worn down in August, they were still as fresh as they were in April. Uh, so, you know, like I say, there's the, the, I think everything in life comes down to pressure and permission there. If you're, you know, a high performance athlete, there's unrelenting pressure to stay at that level because someone is always coming for you to try to take your position. And baseball institutionally did not really get out in front of of doping. And in the, in the 80s, I think they were a little bit more focused on trying to, you know, crush the Players Association. They were worried about the, the cocaine use, give, giving the sport a bad name. So there was the permissiveness piece of it. That confession in Sports Illustrated, of course, came a year after Ken Caminiti was out of baseball. His last game, as I mentioned, was in 01. And then just two years after that, he died at age 41 from the same type of drugs poisoning that also took the lives of comic actors John Belushi and Chris Farley. Yeah, and he's by far not the only super talented uh, athlete uh, or, or, as you mentioned, entertainer to die in this manner, he he did have a, a a drug problem as well, a substance abuse problem. But as I've heard before, I've covered a player like this uh, for a story I wrote, uh, who was a sensational junior hockey player who, who you know who who succumbed to some of the same things that Ken did. And and I heard from one 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 of his teammates. He said, "Listen, if he was just another player, we wouldn't be talking about him, right? We're talking about how talented this guy is." And he wasn't just another player. He was a very good player with his bat in third base. You mentioned that, but I think for the second consecutive episode, it's good to let our listeners know just how good he was. So I'll ask you to, first of all, well, I'll say war. What is it good for? But please tell the, 
tell the average fan out there what war is if they don't know and then how it applies to ken yeah well baseball analytics there's a stat called war wins above replacement that tries to approximate the value of, of a player's contributions to his team and it's you know i don't even know how it's calculated and I, as like i think i said in the last episode baseball reference has one way of doing it fan graphs has another way of doing it someone else probably has another way of doing it but in that mvp year in 1996 ken caminiti by all measure pretty much all measures was the best third baseman in baseball and that's at a time when jim tomey who hit over 600 home runs was was playing third base that's at a time when chipper jones who's now now a hall of famer is coming into his own that year ken caminiti had the numbers and the narrative to be the unanimous MVP of the National League because you can say he's playing that acrobatic third base. He's hitting 40 home runs as the cleanup batter, you know, knocking in, you know, Ricky Henderson and Tony Gwynn on the regular, and he's helping revitalize the Padres franchise that leading them to the playoffs for just the second time in their history. Uh, you know, helps. You know, all of a sudden there's a new enthusiasm around the team. So, like I say, numbers and narrative, and it's you know wild, Neil. He was a unanimous MVP that year when he was finally able to you know not have to dive on the turf in Houston and you know getting the pitches in the right role. Role, but it's funny, unanimous MVP that year never got an MVP vote in any other season. There's actually a great video on YouTube saying he might be the most bizarre MVP winner because just because of that anomaly but obviously clearly he could play when he got into the right situation and obviously had a little bit of a chemical enhancement but people you know still because of you know the way he played and because of the tragic circumstances that cut his life short he's still you know very well remembered especially because he helped you know the Padres who had been a you know a downtrodden team for a lot of years suddenly become relevant and get into a world series and you know probably uh you know made that french help that franchise sustain itself in san diego because they were able to get a you know a new ballpark and and so on and so forth well, i think you nailed it a little earlier too when you said you know he's the guy that people think they'd play like if they made the majors he was relatable and he was you know for, from reading this i want to don't want to say he's perfect because i'm sure you know his wife nancy there was some infidelity there and you know definitely not perfect but as a person, he was the type of guy that would buy the rookie a suit or two. You know, the guy that had no money coming up, make him look good. Or he'd keep a rookie out of trouble. And that was the type of trouble he was often getting into on his own, quietly. In essence, he was harming himself. And that was with illegal drugs, alcohol, and hanging around enablers and later hangers-on. Um, but he was also a favorite of his teammates. Um, and the two teams he played any significant amount of time on, which was Houston, as we mentioned, and San Diego, also mentioned, uh, you know, his teammates generally say he, he gave it his all and he had their back. And even their manager's back in the case uh, of Bruce Bochy, who in 1996, that NL MVP year, um, he was called out by a pitcher, Tim Worrell, who he had moved to the bullpen from the starting lineup. Uh, Worrell called him out in the paper and... Caminiti read it, and the next day Worrell showed up into uh, the, uh, I'm going to say it was probably, was it Jack Murphy or Qualcomm Stadium? Not sure, but regardless uh, what it was named at the time, Worrell, Worrell's contents of his locker were dumped in front of Bruce Bochy's office, and he turned around and he heard, I guess you're the manager now, so you should get dressed in the manager's room. And that was that was Ken sticking up uh, for, his, for his manager. Um, <laughs> Ken came from a baseball family. He grew up in... Um, a middle-class neighborhood in southern San Jose called Cambrian Park. Uh, I looked at Google Maps earlier. It seems to be just a little south of that, but as Dan's narrative says, Cam Cambrian Park. Um, and that was a much different San Jose than the uh, sprawling tech hub it is now. Um, his dad, uh, Leroy, was a standout pitcher and catcher in high school in Illinois uh, from the late 40s to 1950. His brother, Glenn, could play too. He always took Ken under his wing. Um, now, Ken went to high school, uh, as you say, Nate, I believe it would be the 70s, um, perhaps going into the uh, into the early 80s, and there was drugs around and drinking. Uh, I think it's the same as when we went to high school and probably the same as high schools are now anywhere. But, you know, Ken could dabble and manage it, um, even if he went hard, but later that completely unraveled. 
um, as it often does uh, for people with addiction issues. Um, and like, like I said earlier, his career lasted, in spite of all that, 15 seasons from 1987 to 2001. Three years later, he died four kilometers from where he played the 1998 World Series against the Yankees as a member of those Padres. And uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's more on, on, on those, those, that note of drugs, right, Nate? Yeah, I think it's important to remember, like, I, I think there's a bunch of things that have definitely changed, are much different in 2022 than they were during Ken Caminiti's lifespan. Certainly, I, I, I think young people now, there's a much different attitude about young people dr- drinking. I think there's, I think don't think it ha- happens as much anymore. Uh, there's definitely a different attitude about how we should, you know, approach approach it with people who are drug dependent you know you're seeing more open mindedness in north america towards the ideas of decriminalizing you know minor drugs possession i mean you see you start to see like municipal politicians like city councilors in the city where i live who 10 years ago they would have been like hard no to the idea of decriminalizing minor drugs possession and the way that they do in you know many european countries and now they're saying no no this is this is a maybe this is a good idea that we shouldn't be locking people up who have a dependency. And there's also obviously the attitudes toward mental health. Uh, Ken Caminiti did struggle, you know, with with uh, mood disorders uh, and there's that different conversation around that. So, but where, but when he was playing baseball, like he, and being part of the steroid era, that was all, you know, probably of a piece with sort of the government led you know war on drugs in in the u.s and in canada too and that's kind of gone by the wayside a little within the last uh, couple of decades so you can you can but you can only wonder how things might have played out if he you know come along at a, at a different time in north america and and because he's you know not here you don't you can only sort of have someone like dan good filling in you know trying to figure out you know what was going through his mind and for, you know, for, you know, leading him to make certain decisions and affecting, you know, his, his judgments. And it's, and it's through all that and through painstaking work over really, I guess, a decade, as we've heard Dan say, he's produced, I think, a, you know, an excellent baseball biography of someone who, you know, while not, you know, a Hall of Fame level player, deserves to be remembered for the, you know, way that he affected the sport by, you know, speaking his, speaking his truth while he, still could yeah and then you know what nate i mean while you're on it i think uh you know something i hadn't kind of written down in my notes here too but i mean there was there was you know going back to his you know reasons behind what what you know what happened in later in his career with the drug use um you know substance abuse i mean there is there is we'll talk to dan more about this but obviously there was a revelation of sexual abuse that he he no one really knew about right i mean i think it came out after the fact i mean it might even be the First time we're hearing about it in this book, at least as to the general public, which he uh, he endured, I think, as a youngster, which really factored into uh, the way his life turned out, it seemed, at least in the narrative. But back mm. to what you said, it's a sad tale. Dan Good puts a, a face to Ken and leaves readers. He's not just that, oh, that confessional guy or that uh, 1996 NL MVP. He, he puts a face to this guy, Ken Caminiti, and leaves readers with a perspective on his legacy, which, you know is not really as a cheater, but more so as a good soul who was the first to come clean on what was the dirtiest scandal in North American and probably world sport at the time, one of the biggest ever. I mean, however they get, that gets dissected later, it certainly was, you know, all over the news. And let's find out from Dan Good what uh, that confession, what Ken's confession was worth and much more about the man, uh, his career, his life, and, um, you know, everything about him and also about Dan as well. So... We'll talk to him right after the break. And yes, we're back on Sports Lit. Another baseball episode, Nate. Very excited about that. Two in a row. And joining us, as we talked about him off the top, Dan Good. Uh, He's in Scarsdale, New York. Uh, Nate, go ahead. Yes, thanks for joining us today, Dan. Uh, First thing I wanted to wonder about... How did you find the complexity in your subject, Can Caminiti? Because you might not have known what you were going to find when you started researching for this book back in 2012. 
I had no idea how complex this story would be. I had no idea how uh, deep this story would go. And I had no idea how much I would learn about him. Um, you know, you kind of think when you go into a topic, uh, and I, I researched Ken for a year and I was a baseball fan, a big baseball fan. Uh, and that's really why I was drawn to a story. But, you know, after researching a story for about a year uh, intensely, I just felt like there was more there. Uh, but I had no idea what I was going to find. I had no idea where this journey would take me and, um, you know, really intrigued by the shape of it, the scope of it and, you know, what his life meant. And, and, and looking back now from the viewpoint of 20 years later, what value did his admission in Sports Illustrated have in, in 2002? His admission was massive because up until that point, we really didn't have a credible figure, a baseball player coming forward and admitting to steroid use. Jose Canseco, right around the same time that Ken came forward for Sports Illustrated, uh, did an interview with Jim Rome and talked about how 85% of players were using. And you start doing the math in your head and you're like, okay, that's what, 21 players in each team? Like, that's a really <laughs> big deal. Who's, who's talking about this? Who's coming forward? Uh, for this MVP to come forward and say, I use these things, I did them, they helped me win all these awards, I don't regret them, that was massive. And it really changed the scope of the conversation and it forced baseball's hand because now Washington DC is, is you know, looking in. Now fans are criticizing this. You know, we're really wondering, what we watched, is this legitimate? Is this real? And uh, it really forced baseball to start having to clean up its act. Yeah. But at the same time, this book really puts it in the, the terms of the decisions a, you know, a working pro athlete has to make. And a good friend of mine always says that everything in life sort of comes down to pressure and permission. In this case, it's pressure mm. reform. Maybe it's permission to do certain things. Why do you think that Ken was someone who was willing to, you know, take that step? Or is perhaps the point of the book, perhaps that anyone in his position as a ball player in his early 30s with a shoulder problem would have done it? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I like the way you phrased it. I, I do think that this was a situation that every player of that era had to confront for themselves. You know, all the power to the players who said, this isn't for me. I don't want to use these things. I want to play clean. Um, but, you know, you look at Ken's case and you look at all the substances that he was taking on and off the field, you know, looking at painkillers, looking at amphetamines. Uh, what's that next step? You know, where is that boundary crossed that this is now cheating and bad, but the other things are, you know, I mean, obviously the, the drugs he was using off the field were bad. But, you know, it, it's a really fine line and it's a really complicated thing because, even when you go back and look at all of the media coverage back then from the 90s, creatine was big. You know, these players are taking better care of themselves. This is packaged in a positive way. You know, and now you look back and say, oh, they were actually using steroids and not creatine, at least some of them. Um, but there's a really fine line between one and the other. And, and I think that ultimately uh, for Ken, um, you know, this was something he looked at earlier in his career and said, this isn't really for me. This isn't something I have to do. And by 95 and 96, he's on the backside of 30. You know, he wants to get that next contract. He wants to be set for the rest of his life and provide for his family and help his team win. And he felt like he couldn't do that by, you know, being on the DL, not playing. And he felt like um, taking that chance, taking that risk, moving in that direction, you know, was the right decision for him at that time. You know, and it's even complicated looking at usage because there were players and Ken was one of them who used these things the right way, at least at the onset, you know, and if you cycle on and off properly, I'm not, you know, advocating for steroid use, but you know, there's proper usage to this. And then there's improper usage. And, and he was somebody who always took things to the extreme. So, you know, it's always one of those things where uh, it all became too much for him. But uh, I think in the early stages of that, it was a really natural decision. It was just something that he realized you know, I want to be the best player I can be for myself and for my team. And I'm going to, you know, take this journey and take this path. Not to make this entire, sorry, Nate, did you have something no, to say? No, go ahead. No, go. Yeah. Not, not to make the entire, uh, you know, episode or, or, or talk about Ken, you know, specifically about steroids, but it is a massive part. I mean, it's in the title of the book. So I wanted to ask you, you know, the casual fan, casual sports observer who watches all sports, would you say, I mean, for me, it really appeared that you know, performance enhancing drugs 
really took off after the 1994 labor stoppage. And if we're looking at a timeline, that's the beginning, uh, quote unquote beginning. I'll use that a little bit loosely. And then it culminates in these congressional hearings after Ken's uh, confession. Do you agree with this uh, chronology? I think that's pretty fair. There was some steroid use prior to 1994, prior to the strike. In the 80s and the 70s, there were some players here and there using. Uh, Jose Canseco is the most uh, visible example of that. But, you know, it was kind of scattered throughout the league. It wasn't something uh, as in your face as it was in the 90s. And when the strike happened, the players couldn't work out at their team facilities. They couldn't work out with team personnel. And this really drove them to find their own people, find high school friends, find gym people. And this really drove that that whole workout element underground. And that's really where this surfaced from. You know, this was something that these players are, you know, pursuing their own uh, fitness routines. They're working with other people. And this infiltrating the game with this uh, weightlifting element really uh, proliferated the problems of steroids and and really made it more more common and prevalent. And why do you think, I mean, I know this may sound like a really basic question, but I mean, why was there a need for a congressional hearing on this matter at a time when, you know, there you got like the Iraq wars going on. You got a lot going on in the States. I think it's just post 9-11. Why is there a need for uh, all of this uh, at a government, at a federal government level, uh, you know, to happen regarding baseball? It's a really good question, too. I think that You know, you look at John McCain. John McCain was really cracking down on this. Baseball and steroids were an easy target because of the antitrust uh, situation around baseball. And I just think because it was easy to, you know, to chastise them. Oh, this is wrong. I mean, George W. Bush is talking about performance enhancing drugs in the State of the Union address. To your point, there were bigger problems in the world than performance enhancing drugs in sports. Uh, But I think it was an easy thing to focus on. And it was it was good theater. And, you know, they forced these players to show up. Obviously, some of them didn't say anything. Some of them wagged their fingers and denied it and then tested positive later. Uh, so it was a really interesting time. But it was just I think it was Washington, D.C., looking at baseball and saying, you're not doing enough. So we're going to you know make you look bad. We're going to embarrass you. And, and also, I mean, do you think it would have happened in the same way had the president of the United States not been so vested in baseball being a former owner of the texas rangers go ahead i think that's part of it too i mean he was so tied into all of this you know on a on a broader level but when you look at the people around baseball and what they knew and when they knew it and what they did about it the president of the united states is somebody who's in that group you know he was in ownership at the time when ownership should have been paying better attention of this and was benefiting from uh, people showing up and buying tickets to go watch these steroid, uh, you know, using players hitting a bunch of home runs. So it's a really delicate, weird, strange balance going on there. And, and uh, Dan, you hit on something that sort of segues around to what we wanted to ask about the reporting of the book. The fact that, you know, players taking their training away from team facilities was an unintended consequence of the strike. In terms of uh, Dave Moretti, who was Ken Caminetti's childhood friend and sort of, I guess, I guess, his uh, connection for steroids and how to use them. How did you sort of connect connect with him? And how did the two of you develop a two-way trust where he trusts you to get the story right and you trust him to be truthful? I will say that that element, that trust, was the most important thing of any of the people I talked to because I needed to know that he was telling me the truth. And, you know, he's telling me all these things about all these people and, and he wasn't really going into detail about players and, and all that sort of thing. But the things he's telling me, if he's not telling the truth about them, my entire book is, uh, you know, is questionable, is, is suspect. You know, and it's really tough because it's not like he has records laying around showing all the players that he gave steroids to. Uh, so I really needed to dig and to double check and triple check everything he told me. Um, I first connected with him over Facebook. Uh, I had started connecting with some of Ken's friends from high school and a bunch of them said, Hey, you should talk to this Dave, Dave, you know, he, he knows a lot. He was really close to Ken. So that was one thing. There was a lot of people who were close to Ken saying Dave was really, really close to Ken. So there was that. And he, he told me, he said, you know, I'm happy to talk. If you come out to California 
I'll tell you everything you need to know. I'm not doing this over the phone. And I said, okay, I'll fly out. So I took some time off from work, flew out to California, met with them. And within an hour of arriving, he's telling me about how he supplied all these players with steroids. And my jaw is just on the ground, you know, um, wasn't expecting the conversation to go in that way. We weren't even on the record at the time and, you know, kind of worked our way onto the record. And at the same time, I said, OK, this is this is a crucial source. This is the most important source in the book, let's be honest. Um, but at the same time. I can't just run everything he's telling me as is. Um, you know, there were little pieces, little elements. Um, there was a player who had been connected to a woman who Ken was connected to, and Dave was telling me about this player. And when I interviewed Tom Rich, who has since passed away, who was Ken's agent at the time, he was telling me the story about his player that, they, that he represented, who was around the same woman that Ken was. And he said, I'm not going to tell you who it was. And I, I Asked him the name and he said, that's it. And I said, okay, if there's a thousand players in Major League Baseball and Dave knows that this is the specific guy involving with this woman, like that's a big thing. The other big thing was um, uh, Richie Lewis. Uh, Richie Lewis, uh, may rest in peace. I interviewed him a couple years ago and he actually talked to me about working with Dave. And it was really tough because I can't just go into all these conversations with a player saying, hey, do you know this Dave Moretti guy? Did you ever connect with him? Like, they're never going to say yes to that. Uh, but I, I called Richie. Uh, he had been friends with Ken in spring training in 1996 with the Padres. And he brought up Dave's name in the, in the conversation. I said, OK, let's see where this goes. And, um, you know, we were just talking at the time. And I, you know, asked him more about Dave. And he said, I don't want to say anything that makes Dave look bad. Um, but if he's okay with me talking to you about this, I'm happy to do so. So we scheduled a subsequent conversation and he's telling me, you know, the details of Dave helping him set up his own steroids program. And at the time, uh, Richie was playing in AAA and he was telling me about how one of his packages got intercepted by the, um, the front office staff of the team he was playing for. So I cold called the person who was working at that team at the time. And in a two, three, four minute conversation, he confirmed every detail that Richie told me over the phone. So that said, okay, like there's three different layers of confirmation to this story. And I really did do that with everything that Dave was telling me. There were little details, little fragments of conversations, and I really had to triple check everything, but everything matched up. And it's interesting because, you know, people can look down on, um, you know, the things that Dave was doing for players, but I found him to be the, the most trustworthy person I interviewed in this entire process. Well, there's there's that Bob Dylan line, right? You have to live inside the law, you have to be honest. What what <laughs> what was sort of the background that Dave Moretti had that sort of you know enabled him to sort of you know provide you know uh, you know I guess a working knowledge of how to how to use anabolic steroids to players. He had been working in that gym culture for more than a decade. He had been going to college and studying these things. So he was really connected with that culture and he was really connected with that world and understanding how to do things properly, you know, studying uh, where the drugs were manufactured and how they were made and making sure they were made in clean facilities because a lot of times um, people who don't know any better are buying cheap stuff from overseas and it's junk, you know? And at, at a certain point in 1991, in 1993, you know, Ken was really kind of you know, grasping with this, wondering if he wanted to use these things. He was researching things a little bit. You know, he was given a package of steroids by a fellow player at one point. And at the point, he was just like, eh, I don't really want to use this. But then someone else gave him something. And he talked to Dave about it because Dave was knowledgeable. And and Dave was like, no, this is junk. But if you want to use this the right way, uh, we can use it the right way. Like, we can do these things the right way and I can help you. Uh, so it was kind of an evolving conversation between the two of them. And you know, their connection goes back to their brothers playing Little League Baseball together. So it, it really required trust from Ken to be able to trust somebody being able to do this the right way. And subsequently, when players started connecting with Ken and saying, can you connect me with the person who you're working with? It required trust, too, because at any point, you know, this could get out. Um, you know, Dave could get in trouble. Anything could go wrong. Like, you really need somebody at the center of this who's going to be on top of things, who isn't going to keep a paper trail, uh, who's covering their bases, and and Dave did all those things. Yeah, you said it right. They they grew up. They basically grew up together, right? In in yeah. San Jose. Yeah, yeah, they grew up together. 
Um, okay, aside from performance-enhancing drugs, Ken had substance dependency issues, and he went to rehab, and it's in rehab where this bombshell gets dropped in the middle of the book about this sexual abuse uh, that Ken had uh, suffered as a youngster, and, you know, that had led to a lot of things. Um, uh, speaking as, you know, writer, journalist, author, how hard was that uh, to navigate, considering it was a key piece of information and you had, you know, kind of a little to go on uh, and then, you know, and, and to have it such a be such a big part of the book. Yeah, it was a really difficult thing for a lot of reasons. I mean, it was emotionally devastating to learn the details. And, and you're exactly right. I don't have all the details and I don't know that I ever will. Um, but, you know, you start peeling back layers of it. It started when I first interviewed uh, an attorney of Ken's uh, who had worked with him later in his life. And he told me that Ken had endured this childhood trauma, and that was at the center of his addictions. Uh, but because of attorney-client privilege, he didn't really go into detail about what had happened. And that really struck me. And then as I started tracking down and talking to people who went to rehab with Ken, uh, they confirmed similar things, that Ken had talked about being sexually abused as a kid, um, that the details weren't really... He wasn't really forthcoming, I think, even to them at times about full details. You know, it wasn't mm. like he was documenting each thing. But uh, but he he talked about how much this this devastated him, how much this, you know, really it, it really burrowed down deep because, you know, this is something that you don't talk about. This is something you bury and forget about. And, you know, it resurfaced for him. He really tried to kind of turn his mind off. You know, I think a lot of his addiction problems were were fueled by that and without being able to address this properly, it kept coming back and, you know, popping up at the worst times. Um, but it was, it was really difficult to try to report it out because so few people knew about it. Even the people I talked to trying to confirm these things, people very close to Ken, um, didn't have any details. And he really walled off different aspects of his life to different people, which made it complicated. But, um, you know, hearing from three different people in two different rehab centers, talking about similar things, um, it, it made me, it, it crossed that threshold for me in terms of being able to report it. Um, you know, I, I really wish I understood more the context of it and what exactly happened. But, you know, at the same time, it just, it, it really, it, it really devastated him. It really crushed him. And I think it was the central uh, trauma, the central tragedy in his life. And I think it impacted everything else that came after it. You make the really interesting point that it's in rehab where he's first able to speak openly for the first time, and that in turn sets him up to be at ease to discuss steroids publicly. So, uh, Dan, could you kind of explain how the confession came to be out of rehab into the uh, CNNSI expose? Yeah. You know, he, he goes to rehab in late 2001, early 2002, and he's taught that the truth will set him free, that he has nothing to hide, you know, that these secrets and problems don't have any hold over him if he can talk about them openly. And, you know, and then he's just trying to live his life and move forward. You know, he got in trouble with the law with this arrest in late 2001 in this Houston hotel room. He was trying to, you know, let everybody know that he was on the right side of things, that he was cleaning up his life. And the CNNSI producer, uh, Jules Bailey, contacts him says, hey, you know, I'm interested in working on a story, would love to talk to you. Um, and he says, I have nothing to hide, you know, come out to uh, Nevada, he was at a motorcycle rally, uh, motorcycle convention. So she flies out to this motorcycle convention and in this hotel room, talks to Ken about his career and talks to him about, you know, greenies and the ups and downs and the struggles he faced and, you know, the emotional issues and steroids. And he admits on camera to her, for the first time in an interview that he had used steroids in his career, that he didn't regret it, um, you know, and, and really didn't show a lot of remorse, but was really trying to clean up his life and move forward. And at that point, CNNSI was getting ready to shut down. It shut down in May 2002, uh, right around the time that this article was getting ready to come out, this story was getting ready to come out. So they decided that they were going to hold it for Sports Illustrated and publish it in Sports Illustrated. They were going to give this story to Tom Verducci. So Tom Verducci flies out to Texas at Ken's house and talks to him again, talks to him subsequently. Uh, so he did his own reporting. He did his own interview with Ken, uh, confirmed a lot of the same details that uh, the CNNSI producer had confirmed earlier. And, and filled it out with his own reporting. And then this bombshell 
uh, gets gets dropped on uh, in late May of 2002. And and it was just interesting seeing how his um, his rehab and his desire to be open caused him to be open to the point that he was too open in a way and and admitted this massive thing that so many players and people in baseball were criticizing him for when all he wanted to do was just clear up his name and move forward with his life. And, and I can certainly remember how I would look forward for Sports Illustrated to land in my mailbox on, I guess we'd get it on Friday in Canada. But yeah. Dan, do you have like a specific memory of where you were when you first heard that story or saw that magazine cover? Not specifically, but I just remember the the hugeness of it. I remember that was a big deal. That was a big issue. And I was actually getting ready to graduate high school that week. That was the same week I graduated from high school. And it was just a massive thing. And I just remember the news cycle. It was just on TV, on SportsCenter for days and days, people talking about it. And it was this huge, huge cloud and this big, massive thing. And, you know, at the time, it was just it was just fascinating. It was strange. It was weird. It's, you know, how do you feel about your heroes if they did things you don't like? You know, if they were somehow uh, using substances to be better than they should have been. I, it just it's a really complicated issue and it remains a complicated issue till this day in, in baseball the word steroids is synonymous with the asterisks and mm-hmm. and that is always assigned to home runs whether it's the home run chase in 1998 for the all-time record to beat Roger Maris or the all-time record to beat Hank Aaron which Barry Bonds did um, how do we examine Ken's NL MVP season of 1996? Knowing he was on steroids, but given there were, you know, there's uh, there's elements other than power involved in having an MVP season, unlike necessarily, unlike specifically with the home runs. It's an interesting thing, and I always go back to this: of okay, if Ken doesn't win the MVP award, does Mike Piazza win? Mike Piazza's face his own speculation about PED usage. Um, it's a really it's a really delicate thing. Barry Bonds actually was the best player that season in the National League. If we were going based on statistics alone, Barry Bonds should have won the MVP. But Ken was the heroic story. Ken was this, you know, he was out of some folk hero. You know, it was folk story. Um, You know, this uh, tearing his rotator cuff, carrying the Padres to the playoffs. The Snickers game when he had food poisoning, gets, you know, two liters of IV fluid, uh, you know, chomps down a Snickers bar and then goes and hits two home runs. I mean, you know, the plays at third base, the diving stops, throwing the ball across the diamond from his butt. I mean, he was playing at a level that so far beyond anything he had done before or even after that point. Uh, he was having a special season. He was really the team leader. He was the engine of that team. And there were so many things going right for him. It was such a good story. And that's what I keep coming back to. That's really why he won. His statistics alone, he didn't lead the league in anything other than sacrifice flies. He tied for the league league in sack flies, and that was it. Uh, but 40 home runs, 130 ribbies, uh, great batting average, and fantastic defense. Um, so it was it was just the all-encompassing story, but his story was great that year. Do you, do you find it interesting, though, that, you know, it's it, when he, that's what came to my mind when I when I read this book, was like, I, all, the, it seems like steroids is, is connected almost directly to the home runs i i you don't yep. really hear it in 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 other elements of the game i mean maybe you do but not in the same way no you don't i mean the big focus is home runs uh power pitchers sometimes you know you see the the fastball going up four miles per hour when they're 35 and saying oh, something's a little weird here but otherwise no you know you don't look at batting average you know you don't look at batting average and say oh they're using steroids to help their batting average no it's it's power <laughs> it's pure power and that's what it always is. And it, it's interesting, too, because some of that power didn't always help players. You know, you have those middle infielders who would, you know, hit those little bloop singles over the infield, you know, and then they start using steroids. And now they're flying out to the outfield. So it's, you know, it's a complicated thing. And, um, you know, some players used it to advantage. Some players used it to disadvantage. Uh, but it, it definitely helped Ken in the power category. It's interesting because me and Nate were talking a lot about, like, timing and, you know, the, yep. just, you know, the, the bad timing in, in the case of Ken or how his timing intersects, you know, pivotal moments that kind of led to where he ended up. And I, I think of, you know, it's interesting now this book comes out uh, and we actually have, uh, I read an article today here in the Toronto Sun about, you know, we'll, we'll have a, uh, a, you know, a, perhaps the new single season home run record uh, 
and it'll yeah. be done by someone who isn't taking steroids you know and it's, yeah. it's again i've just found that to be an interesting uh, timing thing this season for aaron judge has been so iconic and so special you know he's he's in line for the triple crown you know he's at that 60 home run mark which only six players seven players have done all time uh you look at the fact that um you look at the fact that he's leading everybody else by 20 home runs. That's a special thing. And that's something that we haven't seen since Babe Ruth, uh, that type of gap between first and second place in, in home runs uh, across the major leagues. He's playing at a level that we haven't seen before. And I think, you know, as we understand what it felt like with McGuire and Sosa and Bonds, uh, I think that some of the fun we'll say has been taken away from it. It's, it's a little bit, more sobered, uh, more mature, but at the same time, you look at the fact that it's 20 or 30 years uh, that it takes for somebody to do this. From, you know, Ruth to Maris was 30 plus years, from Maris to McGuire and Sosa was 30 plus years, from Bonds to Judge is 20 plus years. And I think that's an important thing. Like these seasons don't come around often and it's really special when they do. And I think it's a chance to just appreciate uh, somebody, you know, achieving greatness because it, it doesn't happen very often you know speaking of greatness uh ken's always uh been looked at as you know as fielding i guess just as much as his hitting you know how he played the game uh and how he played third base and uh, i know you uh, wrote about that in the book and i was hoping you could read us uh, a passage so our listeners can kind of especially those that never really watched him play um they'll know how he how he did play through your words of course yeah let me read a couple words on that playing third base is sort of like being a hockey goalie without the pads or crossing the street across traffic it's like wrestling a stare at the rodeo you have to time your dive perfectly and corral the bastard around the horns you wind up flat in the dirt but instead of a 600 pound bovine you're trying to subdue a white pill a 115 mile per hour blur And when you get it under control, you have to collect yourself and throw the ball 130 or so feet across the diamond to nab the batter in the 4.3 seconds it takes to run from the batter's box to first base. The hot corner, as it's nicknamed, relies more heavily on instincts than other defensive positions because the players usually position closer to home plate. And since there are more right-handed than left-handed hitters, batters are more likely to hit the ball to the left side of the diamond. Playing third base requires a specific set of skills. And few had those skills or played the position better than Ken Caminetti. Watching Ken play third base was like listening to Hendrix wail on the guitar. It was a revelation. He was a master craftsman, an artist, fully submerged in his craft. He did things you didn't expect. Knock a ball down that other players would miss. Gun the ball to first harder than anyone. Give a glare that could melt titanium. You watched him and knew you were witnessing something special. Third base was a reflection of Ken's influences and experiences. He played the position like he had played football, bruising and relentless. He relied on the stuntman's precision from all the jumps off his family's roof into the backyard pool and high dives off a rocket in a nearby reservoir in his youth. And then there were the endless ground balls he took, the effort he poured him into playing the position. Ken had physical talent, but without putting in the hard work, expertise would have eluded him. Thank Indeed. you. Indeed, yeah. And uh, to, just to piggyback on that, Dan, how, what is important to know about the work that Ken Caminiti did I think, right from his early life to be to become a, a major league third baseman and a 15-year player? He worked so hard to succeed. He worked so hard to get ahead of players. He obviously had a lot of physical talent, you know, and I think he realized that by high school that he was a little bit better than everybody else, but he had to harness and nurture that. You know, and that meant working really hard, you know, and I think he really learned that drilling mentality from his first year in college. He played uh, junior college ball at San Jose City College and uh, John Oldham was the coach there. And he just had this, you know, just drilling, drilling, drilling all the time. And I think getting into that mentality really taught something to Ken about specializing in baseball and specializing on different areas of the game, you know, being great on defense. And he also learned how to switch hit um, as his college career went on. You know, he wasn't somebody who was doing this as a kid. He had to work at it. He would go to the cage and work on his swings from both sides of the plate every time he could, every chance he could. Uh, so it was it was the physical talent. But if he didn't put in the work, it wouldn't have paid off the same way. He would have just been, you know, that, you know, special kind of college or minor league player that doesn't quite pan out. But he, he stuck with it. He kept working at it. 
And and he, it required him to keep working at it because, you know, as he made it to the major leagues, he had some success, but he was inconsistent at the plate. He was still making errors. He was still learning the position. You know, he hadn't quite become that expert, that that top tier player yet. And it really took him a little bit of time and a lot of work to get to that point. And what barriers did he face in in his path? Because I'm sort of remembering, well, he you know, he played football and he wasn't a huge, big framed guy like, uh, well, like Aaron Judge, right? And and now also he broke into baseball when the National League is still in the, the concrete donut era with all those artificial turf parks. And he's playing in Houston and he's, you know, throwing his body all over the place to, you know, rob, rob hitters of base hits and extra base hits. That, that was a big part of it. I mean, playing in the Astrodome, playing on that concrete turf, that did a lot of damage on his knees and back. And, and those kind of lingered throughout his career. Um, you know, he had those lingering injuries from his football days, from his college baseball days. That rotator cuff, that shoulder, uh, had been a recurring injury that really became an issue his junior year of college. He had a collision with a college catcher, play at the plate, dislocated his shoulder, and that shoulder continued to bother him. And I think you saw a lot of these football and early career injuries continue to pile up, and he kept playing through them. You know, and and you know, he found ways to keep playing on the field. And, you know, I think he was looking at substances to pick him up, substances to take him down, you know, but he saw those substances as uh, being a good teammate, you know, doing what he can, everything he can to be on the field. And, and there's a reward that comes with that. There's a respect that comes with that, you know, and that's the tough balance because you respect him for, you know, putting in all that effort and putting his body through hell to play. But then you say, you know, you have to take care of yourself. You know, you really have to make sure you're doing the right things. And there was that that balance that he really struggled with. I um, I wrote a long form piece uh, last summer, published last summer on a talented hockey player who's who's come to the effects of drugs and alcohol, just like Ken did. And he was also known for his incredible skill and his big heart which is one thing that you also illustrate uh, in depth here about Ken, about what a, what a good guy he was and, yeah. and examples of that. But the one thing I often heard when I talked to former teammates and some opponents was, um, this, this is specific to the players, is that they hoped that, you know, whatever I was writing was something his parents could read or if I had reached out to his parents. Now, yeah. I know you did reach out to the Caminitis and they declined because you write about that in the book. But... With that said, what do you hope his family, uh, his kids, his parents, his brother, his, his wife, they take away from your empathetic angle on this story? I think one important thing is that the love that they had for him and the love that they showed for him is reflected. I know it's tough because you look at, you know, the tragic way he died and the way his, his life went. You know, they really loved him and they really supported him as best they could. And I think that's an important thing. Um there were so many people who loved him, who adored him, who appreciated him. And I, I want that to resonate. You know, it's easy to look at the negative qualities and the, the, the issues he faced and the struggles he faced. These are common struggles that people face across our entire society, whether they're famous baseball players or just, you know, people who are working down the street who you, you know, walk past every day. Uh, these are common issues. And, um, you know, I think, I understand. I understand why people close to him didn't want to talk to me. I understand why there's that resistance. I understand um, the sensitivities involved um, far better than most people do. Um, I just hope that I handled his story with respect and compassion. And I know it's not an easy thing. I know it's not an easy thing to put all these details out there. Um, and the people who are related to him didn't ask to be famous. And that's the really tough balance is, you know, Ken is obviously this famous baseball player. His relatives aren't. And that's a really that's a really tough thing uh, when you're writing a book like this, to be fair to everybody. You know, I, I hope I've you know done the best I could in being fair to them. Uh, I, I obviously wish I could have um, talked to them and had more participation from them in terms of the book itself. But I respect the decision that they made not to talk to me. And I just uh, I wish them all the best. Now, two of the guys closest to Ken uh, were teammates Jeff Bagwell and Craig Biggio. In fact, they vouched for him, as you write about, in, in his second stint with the Astros. Yeah. He played a long time with both of them. So when you were writing this book, um, you know, you, it's a 10-year process, you, you say, to write this book. And uh, Jeff Bagwell reveals 
you know, during the pandemic in 2020 that he is a suffering or he suffered from or suffering from alcoholism. And that's when you're finalizing this book. So yep. did that change? Like when you heard about that, did that, uh, how'd that change the narrative or, or was there uh, a moment where you, you said, Hey, maybe I need to look at this in a different way now or. Yeah, that was one of those things. I wish I had more time uh, because it did come out right when I was writing the book. Mm. Um, you know, I really, um, I sympathize for him. And, you know, I think a lot of the players I talk to are dealing with these similar problems, you know, obviously maybe not outwardly the same way that Jeff has been or the way that Ken did. Um, but there's such a difficult thing with seeing your career end, you know, mm. and, and, you know, your whole identity is centered around playing in front of 40,000 a night, hearing the chair, the cheering crowd, um, being famous, signing autographs, being somebody that people care about. And then your career's over and, and you don't have the camaraderie of the clubhouse anymore. You don't have that the cohesive thread in your life. I, I think Ken really struggled with that and a lot of players did. And, um, you know, my heart goes out to uh, to Jeff and other players who have uh, faced those issues. I think that it's a lot more common than we as the public know and recognize you know, you hear these little reports here and there, and someone might come forward and talk about it. I think these are bigger issues that happen a lot more commonly than we think they do. And I think it's a really tough thing for a lot of these players to, to step aside. And um, But no, Jeff and Craig were, were great friends to Ken, and uh, the three of them were, were really close. Yeah, and it did seem that, that um, Ken's, I mean, just the, the, you know, the little amount that's out there about it seemed like Jeff Bagwell's problems maybe did, like you you know alluded to, uh, happen after uh, baseball ended, whereas Ken's uh, issues seemed to be you know while he was playing, even though he could still play pretty well for most of those fifteen seasons. I, that's my guess. I mean, I'm not exactly a hundred percent, but that's my guess. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because you know, as you look at Ken's situation and the the role that Jeff played with Ken and trying to help him and mentor him, even as a younger player. I think that says a lot, and mm -hmm. uh, I think that really resonated throughout his time with the Astros. You know, it's tough to say when things began, but I think, you know, definitely with your career ending, it's it's a it's a common theme and it's a common thread for a lot of these players. Mm -hmm. And of course, Jeff Bagwell in the Hall of Fame. So is Craig Biggio. Uh, I noted that you know when we were researching this, Dan, that. Ken is in a couple of sort of local halls of fame. The San Diego Padres have put them in theirs. His yeah. hometown of San Jose has them in their sports hall of fame. How valuable is it that, you know, there is that, you know, that people have put that respect on his name and on his game and who he was as a per person and, and said, hey, this, you know, no matter what, this guy had, had a, an incredible sporting life. I'm really proud that those entities had celebrated him and appreciated him and put them in their halls of fame because he deserves to be there. You know, he was one of the iconic players in Padres history. That new stadium, that new ballpark doesn't maybe get built without him, without his input, without him getting that MVP season, without uh, showing that team uh, a, a way to win and giving that city uh, a team to support and to adore and love. And he was that engine. Uh, with San Jose, like he he belongs there. He belonged there 15 years ago. I was really glad to see that he's being honored in that way. You know, it's important to celebrate and remember him. You know, obviously he struggled in a in a really difficult way, and his life ended in a way that no one would have hoped for. Uh, but that doesn't negate the person he was. It doesn't negate the player he was. He was the MVP award winner. <laughs> he was a three-time All-Star. He should have won a lot more Gold Gloves than he did. And he was a heck of a good guy for a lot of people. And uh, I just think it's important that people remember that. It, you know, it's not, it's not fair to just cast him aside just because. You know, what if he doesn't come forward? You know, if he never comes forward, we don't know. You know, we, we can guess. We can, you know, assume he did. But we never know for sure. He's the one who came forward to talk about this stuff. And I think that means something. Now, in terms of, of getting his story out there, uh, obviously, you know, I've seen your 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 some of the stories that have been written about this book and interviews with you in San Diego, and I'm sure Houston. There's a, a lot of interest. That, what is some, you know, what where where have you seen a lot of interest? Maybe that you didn't realize there'd be interest in for the story in in doing press because I believe May 31st it was released. Correct? Yeah. It's been interesting. You know, there was obviously those focuses with San Diego and Houston, um, but it's been 
generally a national thing. I've talked to, you know, uh, Wisconsin, Massachusetts, you know, did some local coverage in uh, my hometown of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, mm. So it's just been Florida. You know, I, you know, as a player of his stature, you know, he, he touched fans across the country and it's been interesting to see how people have responded. But, you know, there's always those little pockets and say, oh, he played minor league ball here in 1985. And, you know, here's where he played spring training and, you know, these little wrinkles to it. But, you know, he he has he has fans and supporters across the country and it's been neat to connect with them and to, to see that. As we kind of wrap up here, Dan, we appreciate uh, how much time you're giving us. Um, this is uh, the first book under your name after years of ghostwriting. So how is that different contractually? If we're, if, you know, you're talking to other writers across the room, how does that work when your name is finally on the cover versus when you're when you're basically writing uh, ghostwriting or, or using a pen name? It's an interesting process, and there are differences. So when it's your book and you are, you know, pursuing that traditional book deal, uh, you will work through the publisher. You and the publisher and your agent will work together and hammer out a deal, and you know you're. Uh, sending in uh, the manuscript at a certain point, they're sending edits back, you know, all the approvals go through, it gets published. And, and it just really, you know, you're working through the publisher with the publisher uh, the entire time. And as a ghostwriter, it's different because a lot of times, and I've worked with some traditionally published books as a ghostwriter, um, the author you're working with will be the one and their agent will be the ones who are working with the publisher. You're kind of getting everything secondhand. You know, sometimes you're brought into the process, but you know, you're more of just an add on. You're helping to bring the book together. You know, you're helping with edits, all those sorts of things you're facilitating. Uh, but then the book comes out and you don't do anything with it by and large, uh, unless you're like the top tier ghostwriter and you get to, you know, uh, go on a tour with the subject that you worked with, uh, which does happen. But, Generally, um, the book comes out, they will do publicity, the author or the person you worked with will do publicity, you are on to the next project, you are deep in some other project by then. And, you know, it's been a year since you even thought about this book, and now it's coming out. So it's a different process to be front and center, as opposed to I helped write the book, and now I'm on to another book. And, and in terms of Ken's story, what was the was the sell? Uh, an easy one, or was it a, was it a tough sell to, to get people, you know, a publisher to buy into this? It was not as hard as I thought, but there were some resistances and walls put up early on. I, you know, I had a little nibble because really what happens is you put together a book proposal, which is a roadmap for the entire book. Here's, here's the outline, here's the marketing plan, here's comparable titles and all these sorts of things, who I am, all these things. And you shop this around to agents, literary agents. And, you know, I had a lot of them say, oh, I wish Ken was still alive because, you know, you can't do events and have him sign autographs. So that's mm. one thing. It diminishes the marketing opportunity. Or uh, I, don't really, um, I don't really work with books in this space anymore. The sports book market has narrowed down. Uh, you know, I think a decade ago, this book would have gotten picked up by a big five publisher. I'm not disappointed it didn't, but I, you know, there's a balance there. So, you know, it was really kind of, you know, three months of frustration of not getting a lot of nibbles back of, uh, you know, this is really interesting, but not for me. And then I reached out to an agent named Joe Perry, uh, same as the Aerosmith musician. And, um, you know, he emailed me back that day and said, let's talk. I'm interested. You know, he was, uh, he grew up in baseball in the nineties, just like I did. He had the same mentality and approach that I did to the project. He was on board with it. He helped me punch up my proposal. And subsequently from that, um, I was connected. You know, we were trying to shop it around and, you know, got some interest here and there, but nothing, nothing that was really too exciting. And I had a connection at Abrams, uh, author Michael Stahl, who wrote the Bartolo Cologne book. And uh, he helped connect me with the editor there and, uh, from there, it just all fell into place. And it was interesting because, you know, it's like March 2020, you know, pandemic's just beginning. And we're having this conversation about the book and the potential for it. And, you know, finally got the deal in place. And it just kind of went pretty quickly from there. But then it was like, oh, no, I have to actually write this thing now because, you know, I'd written pieces of it, but not the whole thing. So now it's like, oh, I have to really commit to this, which was helpful in a way because on a book like this, you could spend your entire life you know, focusing on every single little piece, every single thing. 
Um, yeah, and, and ultimately, you just have to write it. You have to just sit down and write it and get the words out there and make it right. And having the deal in place uh, really helped to light the fire for me and say, all right, I have to write this. I have to make this right. And, uh, and it just kind of came together from there. And, and, yes, we, and, sorry, Nate. Um, and we saw the results. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, and Dan, I was just wondering, like, was who's uh, what other authors baseball writing maybe you know provided maybe a beacon or an example that you know just motivated you to keep at this? Oh, there's so many. Um, I one of the ones I befriended and I really appreciate is Dave Jordan. He uh, he co-wrote the book with Dave Parker, and uh, they came out last year, Cobra, which is fantastic. And, you know, it's been really great to connect with him. Peter Golenbeck's another one. He's written so many amazing books, the Bobby Valentine book and so many others. Uh, Jane Levy. There's so many there's so many great baseball writers. And it's just an honor um, to be able to publish a book and see my book on the same bookshelf as them, as their books. And, you know, I think there's that imposter syndrome for anybody who says, do I really belong? And you see your book there and you're like, well, <laughs> there's a book. I actually wrote that, you know, and it's, it's a really special thing. But there's there's so many baseball writers who um, have inspired me and inspired me to be better because I'll read something. Uh, Lonnie Wheeler's another one. I mean, there's so many that inspired me to be better with my book and to strive to bigger things because there's so many books out there that aren't worth reading. And, you know, and, and I don't know, mean that to denigrate anybody, but, you know, it, it's, it's really tough to get it right and to do it the right way. And that's one of the things that I think scared me and kept me working at it for so long because I knew it wasn't ready. You know, I didn't want to rush it and, and put something out that I wasn't proud of and that it wasn't a hundred percent there. Do you uh, think you can ever go back to using a pen name or, <laughs> or being a ghostwriter? I mean, I, I still ghostwrite. I still I have a number of ghostwriting projects I'm working on now. Uh, I, there's more interest in having me be a co-writer, have my name on the cover than there was before. Like I can, you know, help them sell books. I have connections, which is great. Um, so that's exciting. But, you know, I, I, I still appreciate it because it's, it's being able to walk in somebody else's shoes. It's telling interesting stories. It pays pretty well. The projects usually don't take quite as long as a big book project that you're doing on your own. So it's a good balance. I obviously want to write other books of my own as well, but uh, I, I do like ghostwriting and I appreciate the chance to learn new things and connect with interesting people. Well, what's your next project uh, under Dan Good or is there one? <laughs> there will be. I'm still kicking it around. I have some feelers out. There's a, one or two projects I'm, I'm excited about. I really am interested in this steroids era late 90s early 2000s baseball that just speaks to me it's my era uh, i think we all have these feelings that our era is the best era uh, <laughs> or that it's interesting you know but it's it's really like digging deeper and finding those new angles and approaches uh that haven't been written before so i'm i'm still kicking around exactly what that next book is going to be but uh once i settle on it once i feel that that spark inside i, I know it's going to be there well, you make, you make sure you let us know, Dan. Thank you so much for uh, so much time today and for this uh, great book that we both read and uh, really got a lot out of. I know uh, you did as well, Nate. So, mm -hmm. so thank you again uh, for your time. Of course. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure.